What up, what up? This is your boy Carl Cherry. I'm here with Trent Clark and John Sanders, and we are the Rat Pack. So, we haven't recorded an episode, or released an episode rather, since April 21st, so a little over two months. First, because I think we got busy. We'll get more into it. For instance, John got married. Congratulations in public. Thanks, man. Um, but, but, but right after, it started feeling like, um, in light of the death of Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, global protests, uh, spending an hour recording our takes on music started feeling like very, very trivial. So we took a break because it just felt tone deaf, felt like there were more important things. Let me just start with asking both of you guys, and I'll start with John. Uh, how have you been in the past two months? And how have you been dealing with everything that's happened? You know, I mean, I've always, as a, a, a white guy in hip hop, um, as a writer, as a manager, as someone who's worked um, in kind of various phases of, of the record business, I've always tried to figure out how to uh, exist as someone who is working with culture that is not mine and, and essentially as someone who is an interloper in a place that that I am not from. Um, I've always understood my my place that way. And it's a, it's a continuous education. I think that everything has been intensified right now because of both the conditions of the coronavirus and just the, uh, the extremity of violence that is being committed against black people, black women, black men across America. Um, you know, I, it's been a difficult time for me, but I know that this is what Black women and men have faced for hundreds of years. So for me to say it's a difficult time, that that feels totally empty. Um, and so that's something that I've kind of put the, to the side and just said, you know, I need to continue to educate myself. I need to continue figuring out ways to support people through the structures that I have around me and to help build structures with the clients that I work with to continue lifting up voices and faces and people that don't look anything like me. So. Uh, it's been a very reflective and an active time, for sure. Trent? Just seeing how the police just conduct themselves in this, uh, in, in all types of various scenarios has, you know, has allowed me to just, I guess, have my blood pressure up um, these past uh, few weeks, you know. But when George Floyd died, that was the first thing I saw when I woke up, and it just... Um, you know, it just, it just turned me the wrong way, like, you know, again, really. But uh, the reaction, uh, you know, all across the board, including uh, within the hip-hop community, has been overwhelmingly uh, positive. You know, I, I think people are not going to stop until they see real change in their life. Yeah. Uh, it, you guys have actually helped me figure out what I'm about to say, both in pieces of what you said. Uh, I was catching up with someone recently and um, she said, she, she summed it up perfectly. She said, I've been going in and out of being overwhelmed and that's how I've been feeling. Right. And I remember specifically uh, around George Floyd's death, I spoke to a few friends and we were all sharing the same concern, which is we were uncomfortable with our reaction. Uh, you know, I think we all, if you, if something that tragic happens being killed by, by the police, you, 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 
the the the, the north. I mean, the, there's so much anger out there, but I think we were nervous that it was becoming so normalized that we weren't as outraged as we felt we needed to be, right? Or we should be. And I remember, I think it was a Friday, and it was that same day that everything went to hell when the protest started going crazy and. I think they marched right in front of my building. And I remember having that conversation that morning. And by that night, I was so fucking angry. It was just all this piling up, all these things that not not only specifically as it pertains to like, you know, the the long history of police killing black people, but just everything that's happened this year. Freaking Kobe died. Pop Smoke died. Um, I had, you know, two people in my family have died. Like, COVID, we can't go anywhere. It's disproportionately killing Black people. And now, like, we're getting killed by the cops again? Yeah, and, and it kept going, too. Let's not, uh, you know, forget about Rashard Brooks, you know, uh, the whole scenario. Yeah. The first time we thought about recording and canceled, uh, John brought up what is the artist's responsibility to use their platform during this time. And uh, that was over a month ago. And I think we've seen artists show up like arguably never before. Like, you know, if you go back to 2014, the response on record, I think there were several instances, but I think the, the Pimper Butterfly is the, Kendrick Lamar's the Pimper Butterfly is the hallmark, is the moment. He is the one that, reflected the times we were going through in a way that we all remember. But at the time, I think the other thing that was happening is that social media activism was a new thing that we weren't used to. So people were all, people was showing up. They were just showing up in different ways. But what's been amazing the time around is that we're seeing all types of protest music coming from not only people like her or Anderson Pop, who are likely voices, but people like Lil Baby, The Baby, uh, YG, Trey Song, there's a host of artists who that's not really their wheelhouse. They don't talk about, you know, social issues in their music. They'll rather turn up, but this is too big to ignore, so everyone's chipping in. So definitely, um, I mean, Little Baby elevated himself uh, with just one song, you know. It, it not only dropped at the right moment, it said all the right things, you know. And, uh, you know, it, it came at a time where uh, young people needed fuel uh, and he delivered. So, I mean, that, that's obviously the one that stands out to me. I think it was on Pitchfork, I want to say, that there was a really interesting article uh, about uh, how in, in protests in New York, Pop Smoke's Dior was becoming a kind of uh, a, an unlikely protest anthem. And I think that one of the things that you, obviously that's not a, not a new song, but one of the things that you're seeing is like, we're dealing with things that are so overwhelming socially that it's hard to write a song that encompasses the feeling. So sometimes you need to find music that's either healing or that just gives you a release. And I think that you're probably going to continue to see that with a lot of the, the, you know, the music that comes from after this period. I think it's, you know, it's difficult to write a song that encapsulates the moment. That's why uh, Kendrick still feels so, relevant is that he he poured everything into to Pimple Butterfly and that album is you know it's profound it's not necessarily as visceral as some of the things that 
that we're talking about, but All Right continues to be that song that pops up, Carl, as, as you know from even kind of like pulling in the songs that that made sense to to program uh, in, in the wake of all of this. Um, but, you know, I just think it's, this is where it always gets difficult, where, where, you know, art and activism, they do meet, but ultimately it's really about drawing attention and funds to the activists, to the people that dedicate their lives to these things. Um, and no one song is going to solve this. There is music that can unify, but like ultimately, you know, it's about seeing the artists that are pointing to the people that are risking their lives day in and day out and that are on the streets day in and day out and that are working in various organizations to actually push these causes forward. So, you know, I think as long as that effort continues, the music is going to be what it's going to be. I think that what's more important is artists continuing to point to those people, to those organizations. That's hip hop. Right. Keywords from Trent. This is hip hop, right? So let's isolate it to rap real quick. Is this the most amount of protest songs we've seen in hip hop hit the mainstream since the earlier days when Public Enemy and NWA, the golden age, for example? Because when hip hop went mainstream, I think people started running away from being conscious. There started being that perception or that connotation that, you know, if you were conscious, you were preachy. And I feel like that's when. It, it took refuge in the underground to some extent. So is this the most music we've seen, the most protest music we've seen in the mainstream ever or like since then? I mean, definitely since then, you know, um, critics of hip hop uh, will point to that mid nineties uh, period when CDs start flying off the shelves like hotcakes, you know, record labels were pushing the artists to be more and more commercial, more and more frivolous, more about materialism, you know, stuff to just attract everybody, you know, create a spectacle instead of focus on the message. So I'd say by default, yes, ever. Nowadays, artists have no restrictions on the type of music that they put out, uh, mixtape, EP, independent, you know, I mean, major label artists still put out independent music. And um, yeah, um, yeah, we're, we're, we are seeing uh, people actually, I mean, Wale released the whole fucking EP on it. So Wale's in line with the type of person or artist that you would have heard from historically. I think what's surprising here, of course, no, he's he's he's, he's I mean, yeah, on issues. Yes, like, yeah. But I, it's, the it's surprise not, here is Lil Baby and the baby and artists that typically make that kind of music stepping up to the plate. I think that that's what's helping the volume become so big. But I also think it's that, you know, in the early 90s and the late 80s, so much, so many different kinds of music constituted political statements where you look at kind of like, you know, the broad spectrum of gangster rap, conscious rap, the overlap that happened between those where you had, you know, artists like Ice-T and Ice Cube and NWA, Public Enemy, but then you had Poor Righteous Teachers. You had this broad spectrum and, you know, or even things like the Stop the Violence movement. I mean, there really was a kind of a Boogie Down Productions. Boogie Down Productions. And, you know, and this kind of like broad palette of what socially aware music could be. I mean, I've always had, had, or not always, in the kind of, like, as I've gotten older, I've had issues with the the term conscious rap because I always wonder, like, what is unconscious rap? Like, to me, there are things that early Gucci Mane songs say about what it means to grow up in a certain context in Atlanta that are just as profound 
as things that are in so-called conscious rap songs. And they might sound like tossed off lines, but that's, but that, you know, there, you have to be willing to catch those things and process them. One thing we have to consider is the times either, you know, rappers in the nineties and the eighties were not able to rap from a position of wealth. You know, I mean, it might've been some street hood uh, wealth, but not, not on the, you know, like no, no rapper had a, First, no rapper really had movie deals like that. And, you know, no rapper had a mansion like Drake's. You know, the, the, the hip-hop media wasn't fully defined yet. You know, hip-hop, you know, still hadn't... The, the, the titles that hip-hop has at Grammys and other award shows, you know, were altered and, and weren't even televised. So, you know, you have to consider that, you know, hip-hop did have to talk about the streets to get where they are. Word. I, I started smiling when John, was, uh, when John made the conscious reference because I remember 50 Cent saying... You know, they talk about Talib Kweli and Mos Def and they call him conscious. You know, I'm jealous of that. I'm conscious. I know what I'm thinking. (laughs) (laughs) I remember when he used to say that. And I was like, yo, he's kind of making sense. That's a weird label to put on people. Conscious rap. Good old 50 Cent. Uh, All right. So let's get into these topics. One of the people we mentioned is Lil Baby, right? And um, he's... He's the hottest rapper, not just rapper. He's the hottest artist in the world right now. My turn is number one, I believe, for the third non-consecutive week. I think by the time this airs, he might be number one for the fourth week. He had a breakthrough year in 2018, but it feels like he's really separating himself from the pack this year. I think Roddy Rich did something similar earlier this year. Well, late last year when he came out with, please excuse me for being antisocial, where he was really dominant the first quarter, at least, of the year. And Baby's having a similar moment right now. And, I, you know, just going back to the conversation we had with Russ uh, a few episodes ago where we were trying to identify the leaders of the new pack, Travis Scott is the one person that felt unanimous. Like, okay, we are very confident that Travis Scott is going to be one of the artists leading the new generation in this decade. I know it's premature to call it, but right this second, for me, it's starting to feel like the 2020 version of Drake, Kendrick, and Cole might be Travis Scott, Lil Baby, and Roddy Rich. And we're going to start with Trent to see what he thinks, because I know he has issues with this premature take. I mean, the, you know, I'm calling it now. You know, the the leader of the next decade is going to debut sometime in like 2023. You know, um, the way rappers' careers are going now, you know, back to my earlier point, you know, they're all getting money. They're getting money fast. Uh, they're doing a lot fast and they're burning out fast, you know. And the ones we applauded, the ones who are able to, to transition and find other ways to be relevant in the space. So, um even, even I will even throw Travis in this. I don't see any of these stars, uh, you know, by the end of this decade, being full time in the music. You know, they all, all three of them have personality. Uh, you know, uh, some more untapped than other little little babies becoming a star. You know, I, I like to watch Breakfast Club interviews. Uh, like Twenty One Savage is a great example. You watch the very first Breakfast Club interview, dry as hell. You know, uh, probably even nervous then. Fast forward three years later, laughing and joking, you know, and got all the designer gear and everything. So, uh, you know, once artists find themselves, 
you know, once they start dealing with the spotlight and everything, you know, they 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 tend to branch out and we become to see their true self. So, yeah, I'm going to go ahead with uh, none, but I'm I'm excited. To- <laughs> excited to see so what- none of them, even Travis. You don't think Travis because you think Travis is going to leave music. Yeah, but but rappers never retire. Even fucking Too Short, who was the first rapper to retire back in the '90s. So but I get your argument, but it can't be that he won't be making music anymore. It has to be because you I mean, don't I think he'll be able to focus. As far as as far as like leading the pack, no. Why? I took because they're going to get out of music. They're not. They're not. Their focus is going like once they create some shit where you can create sounds to build a house. Travis Scott is going to be doing that. Little baby can be an actor. The baby can be the next Jamie Foxx if he wants to. He's he's funny as hell. You know what I'm saying? Like, I mean, the the the, the for rappers in 2020 versus 1988, what we were just talking about, the sky is the limit. You know, John Tanner's can the baby become the next Jamie Foxx? <laughs> how could I? How could I possibly argue with that? I don't even know where to. I don't even know where to be. I do think he could, but um, although Jamie Foxx better singer than than the baby is. I mean, look, I think. There's something really interesting about Travis to me, which is that from my perspective, like what Travis has mastered is the ability to use platforms to drive attention towards his music. He mastered using SoundCloud to drop Lucy's and turn them into singles. What he did with uh, Fortnite was pretty much unprecedented, not the idea of a digital concert, but the idea of using a virtual platform to create a concert that was its own kind of content, you know, with the giant Travis Scott falling through, playing two songs, premiering a new song. I think that as the world evolves, as media evolves, he's he and his team seem to be the only ones that have really like fully grasped what you can do in, you know, triangulating music and merch and all of the kind of entertainment aspects. So to me, you know, it's... I guess it's as much as keeping his interest, but I highly doubt that someone that knows the power of his music to drive other products in his realm is going to give that up because he's from the school of Kanye. Like Kanye's always been the master of, let me make an album that drives people to other places. So I don't think he would ever exit that. I think that he's definitely cemented it at, at kind of like, you know, head of the class and, until further notice. I also, when we were talking offline before recording, was surprised not to see the baby in here, even though I know there's some, you know, concern about him running his, his style into the ground. I think he's savvy enough to know to switch it up. And now he's shown that even if there is a little bit of fatigue around him putting out so much music, he still can deliver hit records. There's not enough fatigue to keep him off the top of the charts. Yeah. Well, I think the baby will be in a conversation just like, uh, you know, if you look at the past decade, future had moments where he dipped in there, like the big three kind of, shuffled like uh in 2014 uh 15 like cole had a moment where he was ahead of kendrick when it was forest hill drive versus the paper butterfly keep in mind there was a moment where future was bubbling up and then he dropped honest and he had there were records that worked off of honest but people were like you know all right this dude's making records of miley cyrus like i don't think this is gonna go the way that we thought it was gonna go and then suddenly 2015 16 17 he just goes on an absolute tear and he's still you know obviously not necessarily from a creative standpoint uh in in the eyes of most of the fans that look at that like 2015 period i know myself included that was like the you know the kind of the that bright burning brilliant moment but he's still a dominant 
artist. So, you know, I do think that there's a, like, even if people have the baby fatigue, I would be inclined to think that he's clever enough to figure out maybe I'll, you know, sit out the rest of 2020, sit out part of 2021, come back with a different style, a different sound. You know, he, it's just that he's, what he does is so different from anyone that we're comparing him to. I think that's the reason that it cut through in the first place. So, you know, it's going to be hard to, to dislodge him from that spot. Yeah. Uzi's another one that I think we would have to consider as being a conversation. Uh, Trent, is your take, aside from Travis, aside from you feeling like Travis is going to leave music, does your take also have to do with the fact that, as we've discussed with the, uh, in, in the Russ episode, uh, the biggest rappers always know how to rap at an elite level. And if the Trinity or the big three for the 2020s was Travis, Lil Baby, and Roddy Rich, though all very talented and, you know, from a substance, a subject of like, you know, standpoint, Roddy and Baby say a lot of compelling things, they're not elite rappers from a traditional mold. So is that part of your assessment where you're like, nah, it can't be those three? Actually, no. You know, I think, you know, I have a prediction. I don't even know if it's a bold prediction, but I think in the next 10 years, I think uh, the standard on what makes an elite rapper will be more of along the lines of Drake than a, a J. Cole or Kendrick Lamar. You know, actually Chance the Rapper, uh, Chance the Rapper in his prime uh, would be a good example. You know, being able to effortlessly infuse melody, uh, you know, with some clever bars, but uh, you know, as it, 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 it's, it's rap continues to act as the, the new pop music, you know, I don't think there's a lot of wiggle room for, uh, like there'll always be a, a couple seats at the table, you know, for true, true school MCs, but uh, you know, the, the, the sound is going to keep getting more melodic. And uh, matter of fact, uh, I, I actually not mad at Uzi coming out on top next decade. I, I will say, and this was something that I think I also brought up before we, uh, you know, hopped on. I think that we can't discount Meg. I know that she hasn't had that, that kind of like, you know, that singular moment yet. Um, obviously, Savage is a huge record. Um, feels like Girls in the Hood is going to be a big record as well. But she's really young. You know, she does really rap. And she, I think, appeals across a very broad spectrum, both musically and from a personality standpoint. I think that, you know, even though it's hard to say exactly where she's going to come out uh, musically in the next few years, I think Cardi B is another person that can't be ignored. And, you know, between her personality and the just scale of the the music that she put out. You know, I think that there's a conversation to be had about whether or not in the past four decades of hip hop or since his hip hop's inception, the sort of, you know, the one of the big three has ever been uh, a woman. And I, I think that now more than ever, that is, is not only possible, it's probable. Um, you know, I think that that's going to be something that feels like, part of the next decade. You know, I think there are even dark horse candidates, people that, you know, both male and female, like a Playboy Cardi or someone who I think is on the much lower end of the spectrum right now from a popularity standpoint. But when you listen to someone like Tierra Whack, like to me, I see, you know, Missy Elliott for the for the new decade. Now obviously she's not 
on the same scale as the people that we're talking about, but the talent is there to jump the line really quickly. So, you know, to Trent's point, I, I think that there's a chance that either the artist that is going to be in this big three doesn't even, you know, isn't even on our radar yet, or is someone that we're not necessarily looking towards as a, you know, a, an immediate superstar. I, I, I think the person I'm about to mention is nowhere near Meg's level yet, but it's someone I'm excited about and I'm paying attention to. Flo Millie is very interesting. Yeah. And she has those Instagram caption bars on deck. I can't rap along to any of them, but I listen to them and I'm like, yo, she's talking that shit. She's going to be, be interesting one to watch for sure. Um, but let's stay on Little Baby some more, right? So today, Black came out with a song titled Know My Rights. Bankroll Hayden came out with a song titled Drop a Tear. And Lil Mosey came out with a song titled Back At It. And all those songs feature Lil Baby. Fittingly, he tweeted earlier today that his feature now cost $100,000 a pop. He's clearly the most sought-after guest rapper right now. But is he the cameo king? And when, I, when I'm asking that, I think the cameo king is a different concept now because there's so many features all over the place that the conversation has kind of changed. I think that when you go back to Lil Wayne, even Drake more recently, or Busta Rhymes, or Ludacris, there was like a conversation around the rappers who gave the most value to, added the most value to a song based on their guest appearance. And I feel like, I, I don't know if it's lost. I don't think it is, obviously, because Lil Baby's able to command like $100,000 a pop. But it's not the same conversation. I mean, Cameo King, I think, you know, we've, we've talked a lot about the, the Drake stimulus package over the years. Um, I think that that was a kind of a, a you know, a one-of-a-kind thing that he used to bestow on random songs where you would just be like, oh, you know, I knew about the Migos, but now they're everywhere. Um, so I don't know that anyone has that, that power right now because music is in such a random place. And I think also like not a hundred percent certain that a hundred to $150,000 investment is the wisest thing to spend on a feature. Um, but you know, record labels are always trying to find ways to cross a song over or keep it on one of your lovely playlists. I think that this is, you know, the, the kind of thing that like, to me, Lil Baby right now is what the baby was last year, where it's like, that's the easy solution. You look at the charts and you go, who's the one right now? And he's in that, he's in that position for sure. But there's also, and this is a kind of a, a different example, like if Travis hopped on a song right now, if he did what he did with Kid Cudi, where if you look at Cudi, Cudi was, you know, he's, he's obviously a, a living legend to a lot of people. Um, and has still remained relevant, but he's now relevant in a way that he hasn't been for, you know, maybe a, a decade because of his work with, with Travis on the Scots. So I think that until you reach that level where your presence alone can take a song into the stratosphere, like the cameo King idea, I don't know if, if, you know, anyone can really claim that personally. Wait, so, so, okay. Throwing this in there before we go to Trent, J. Cole. The run he had recently where he dropped uh, verses on uh, 21 Savage a lot amongst many songs. 
it was more of a moment from a quality standpoint than, okay, adding a J. Cole verse is going to just put you on the charts automatically like Drake does. But I think you could have made an argument that during that stretch, he was the cameo king. And, the, and that his cameos were the most impactful from a, you know, not only a quality standpoint, but, you know, I mean, a lot won a Grammy. Like, I mean, that's, you know, that's the kind of thing that, that uh, a great cameo, a, a, a well-made song with a feature that's thoughtful and doesn't feel tacked on. I think that's the, you know, that's the problem with, uh, I guess, where some of these features land is that it just feels like, all right, well, we were in an A&R meeting and had to figure out who was the rapper that was most likely to get us on Rap Caviar. So uh, I guess just back the Brinks truck up to their house. Um, but, you know, that's that's also does feed into what you're talking about, which is like part, you know, even going back to the idea of the next big three, I don't think that you can be considered one of the most dominant rappers of an era if your name doesn't come up consistently in the conversation about, well, who should we get on this record? Um, I guess to answer your question, yes, Little Baby is the cameo king, but, you know, this particular slot, you know, it doesn't hold his weight, uh, the same weight that it used to, you know, I mean, I'd I give a cameo king right now, Burger King, clown, you know, it's, it's, it's you know, Little Baby is, the, is currently the hottest rapper on the planet, you know, a couple months ago, it was Roddy Rich. a couple months before that, it was uh, the baby, you know. Uh, so, you know, artists still assume these spots like they, like they used to, but you know, you, you hearkened on Busta Rhymes and Twister, uh, you know, I throw Ludacris in there, you know, they had a cameo King run too. And, you know, to Jay, I mean, to uh, John's point, um, if, if you look back at what, how records were released through record labels back in that time, you know, they weren't just putting, putting a semi fire on, on the records and just letting them fly, you know, it was really, really stringent board meetings and only one remix was coming out. And that was the one that got like 16 weeks of radio play all across the board. Now, like John said, these songs come out, they come and they go, you know? So, you know, the slot, you know, does get filled, but you know, it's just really, really revolving door. I'll, I'll tell you when we know who the cameo king is. When Katy Perry and Taylor Swift call Lil Baby up for that next, uh, you know, that next big single, when Justin Bieber says, hey, who, you know, who's going to be my ludicrous for 2021? That's when you know, because <laughs> that's because that's when the goal is complete saturation of everything from pop to, to hip hop. So, you know, I'm sure Lil Baby's getting that call already. John, that's a great point, because in the prep, you also mentioned that that's what's, what was happening with the baby last year. The Lil Nas X remix, mm-hmm. the uh, Truth Hurt remix mm-hmm. from uh, Lizzo. So it'll definitely be interesting to see who calls on Lil Baby in the next few months. Trent, you just keep giving me alley You keep using words that are just great segues to the next topic. You use the two words, revolving door. And that's what the Hot 100, at least the number one song on the Hot 100 has been feeling uh, for the past three months. We started out the year with Roddy Rich's The Box at number one, and it stayed there for 11 weeks, 11 consecutive weeks. I think it dropped off on March 28th. And ever since then, we've had a collection of different songs just replacing each other. I think Doja Cat Say So was one of them. I think The Weeknd spent four non-consecutive weeks at number one. The Baby has gone number one. Uh, 
Don't forget the Scots. The Scots went number one for a week. Uh, Trolls went number week, <laughs> number one for a week. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, the baby, the baby and Roddy Rich. So they're, they, they've been number one for two weeks. They seem like the most likely candidate to, to break the streak. But how much of this, what I want to get into is how much of this has had to do with the climate. Like ubiquity is not the same thing. Hip hop specifically, I think, has been penalized by the fact that we can't be outside. There's no car effect where you're hearing songs, you know, from one car to the next. There's no club. I think about your favorite, uh, Trent Nav, who's Turks, would have, you know, killed the clubs right now if it was out. So how much of this revolving door has to do with the fact that nothing is really sticking, at least not in the same way? I mean, I think artists, right, especially in 2020 during the quarantine, you know, I think they're making their records uh, for for the spectacle, uh, mounting it to uh, Billboard Hot 100. You know, if we look at, you know, the road to some of these songs um, <clears throat> getting to number one, you know, uh, the Doja Cat, Nicki Minaj, you know, Doja Cat says she's going to show her boobs. If, uh, you know, if they get to number one, um, um, we had, uh, you know, the baby and the rock star, you know, they teased the hell out of that record, uh, pumped the hell out of that record, uh, you know, hashtag the hell out of that record. Um, I honestly don't know how the Scots went number one, but, uh, I can tell you exactly. The Fortnite joint. The, the, the Fortnite, Fortnite was the Fortnite. Uh, so, okay, 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 yeah. That, but, but also, yeah. also they did. They did like seven million dollars of merch bundles in an hour. <laughs> All right, I think we're gonna have to talk about fucking merch bundles. Spectacles, you know. So, like, yeah. people, like, you know, it, since everybody's attention is, is linear to an extent, you know, we're in the house, you know, we're listening, like, we're not listening to uh, music recreationally like we used to. You know, the the name of the game is to create the biggest sideshow to get the number one. I, I mean, I get it and I respect it. You know, it is what it is, but that's why the songs aren't lasting that long. I think also you just, there's no DJs. You know, I mean, D-Nice no had, had a moment and uh, I, I know people are still logging on to Twitch to see different performances, but you can't go to a bar and hear music or I guess you could in Texas until today when they decided to shut things down again. Um, but, you know, you can't go to, to the places you would normally hear music. There are no basketball games. There's no NBA playoffs yet and there might not be an NBA playoffs if players start testing for COVID. So a lot of the, the places are testing positive. A lot of the places where music lives, they've been either shifted or taken away from this time. You know, there aren't those kind of anthems that pop up in different places that are outside of radio or outside of playlists. And I would even say, you know, obviously radio is still present. Songs are still moving up the charts. People are still listening. But I know I certainly haven't heard anything on the radio recently it was a shock to me when one of the people that that uh, i work with with day trip told us that the scots was number 10 on rhythmic radio i thought radio had just ceased to exist because i stopped thinking about it you know it's like this all of the traditional things that the, the mechanisms that we know for breaking records they've kind of been muted by what's going on with people having to stay in their houses driving fewer places and granted i mean you know all three of us are are, are talking from a place of a, a kind of privilege because we work from home or we're able to work from home. So we're not necessarily seeing some of the things that, you know, I mean, there are people who are still driving to work, still have to be at work. Um, but even still, I think that 
those people aren't then getting to go do the recreational activities or watch the kind of, of television that would expose them to music like sports or things of that nature. So, you know, I mean, it's, it's a very odd time to try and sustain a campaign. Like Trent said, I think it's a, it's a great moment for spectacle because you can grab someone's attention with a Fortnite performance or with a crazy live stream. If you're someone like a, you know, a Tory Lanez for a few moments at a time, but that sustained release, it's really difficult. Yeah. Like the fact that there's no ubiquity to a point, like I think moments just don't mean the same any, anymore. Like I, I go back five years to Drake finally dropping that hotline bling video and how it felt when you were out and the whole spot was dancing like Drake. Like that's a moment. Like we, we can't have those anymore. I was on Twitter talking about Lil Mosey, Blueberry Fago. And I'm like, yo, this song is being deprived of the summer it deserves. Totally. Even um, I tweeted, uh, Lil Baby, we paid. And Steph Floss, who's a DJ, responded. He's like, do you know what this would do in the clubs right now? And I'm like, fuck. Like, we probably won't get to experience those records as good as, as, good as they are. We won't get to experience their peak in the right setting. Like, ever. Right. So, so do you think they should stop making them? Like, hold them? I don't know if that's the answer. I think it's interesting because we, we discussed conscious protest songs earlier and a lot of people were arguing that music with substance would do better in these times because that's what you consume in isolation, headphone music or whatever. I don't know if that's the answer, especially not the fact with the fact that things are opening back up. Like, listen, I'm staying inside, but there's going to be a wave of fucking house parties or something. That's going to happen. So I don't know. I don't think that's the answer. Like, the, look at the baby, right? Like, like the, the song just slowly climbed the charts. I think we're going to start hearing it outside if you choose to be outside. Let's move on to one of our favorite people, Freddie Gibbs. He came out with a collaboration album with Alchemist a couple weeks ago, Alfredo. Interesting title. I love it. Um, and the album was in the cycle of Blackout Tuesday. So Freddie and Alchemist weren't able to promote the album as intensely as they could have. And it sold 31,000 copies first week. I think, Trent, correct me if I'm wrong, this is his highest first week, right? So this is Freddie Gibbs in year, what, 12, 11? A decade into his career, Making the well, having the most successful first week of his career, John. You brought this up. Like, how are some are two people like Freddie and Alchemist, who are veterans, able to keep not only excelling in terms of quality, but keep scaling? I mean, something that I've been thinking about a lot this morning or today that is related but separate from this. I think that like. One of the greatest factors that cripples artists' creativity is the idea of being burdened by the debt of a record deal where you feel like you are under this, this pendulum swinging over your head and you have to deliver something that is commercial, right? That's always been something that rappers have complained about and they have been ultimately handicapped by over the years. And I think that Freddie, as someone who was for a long time a kind of I don't want to say major label outcast, but someone who had been in the major label system had not seen the success that he wanted. He was. And then, you know, to sort of make this, uh, I guess, career defining 
album with Pinata that was so unexpected from what people, you know, ever would have thought a guy who had worked with Jeezy would make and to then have the controversies that he lived through and fought through come back, put out a string of albums that kind of got him hot again from Freddie into Bandana. And then now with Alfredo, and I know I'm missing a couple of things in there, but just kind of, you know, skipping around for the sake of, of narrative. I think that a lot of it is an artist who was always incredibly talented now feeling like, well, the pressure's off. I'm in my 30s. I can make the music that I want to make. And I don't have to feel like I need to go and make some radio single or do this or do that. And I think that it speaks to kind of, you know, a lot of the the undercurrents of things that are happening right now in, in rap at large, where you look at, you know, Jay-Z putting out a 444 and the kind of, you know, the sound that that brought to not a, a kind of a, a radio audience, but back into a kind of mainstream consciousness to what's going on in the underground with rappers like Mike and Pink Sifu and Overcast and even what Earl is doing as kind of the like, you know, the... um I guess the the not architect, but kind of one of the the elder statesmen of that young scene. Like, there's a real appetite for the kind of music that Alchemist has perfected over the years. And Freddie is such an incredible rapper that the two of them together sort of form this almost like you know golden era style alliance between producer and artist. So, you know, I, I don't know. I, I think it has to do with comfort and freedom. Those are the two things that have allowed Freddie to make the music that he wants to make. And, and as he gets sharper and sharper as a rapper, he's just working with producers that are able to give him what he needs. So, yeah, I don't know. That, that is what it feels like to me, comfort and freedom. Trent, I don't think Freddie's ever been uncompromising. Uh, I mean, ever been compromising with the music that he makes, you know? Like, if you ask 10 Freddie Gibbs fans what your Freddie, favorite Freddie Gibbs song, they're going to give you probably eight different answers um you know he doesn't have a signature hit uh what he does have is a very very solid handle on quality control you know and so um you know back to the point i made earlier i i do think the uh the slots for being a true school mc is uh dwindling he's established himself as someone who's going to deliver that every time and uh, i i think it shows and all the moves that he's been making uh, in 2020 alone, you know, critically another, another critically acclaimed album that uh, just feels effortless uh, on, on a solo uh, major label uh, record deal with Warner. You know, I mean, uh, you know, he's, he's popping without, without the spectacle. Word. I don't have nothing to add. You guys said it best. I want us to end on a fun note. Here's what I want us to do. I want us to pick the winners of quarantine, right? Because we're not in quarantine anymore. We are still in a pandemic. We're still living with restrictions, limitations, but businesses are open back up. You go to restaurants now with a mask, whatever. So this is not social distancing. You should still practice it, but it's not quarantine as we knew it three months ago. So quarantine is over. And I think it's time for us to crown winners of that moment. Well, a few parameters. You can't just be a winner of quarantine because you put out music or did something during that time period. You're eligible if you created a moment out of circumstances. For example, Tory Lanez, Quarantine Radio. He had to figure something out. Everybody was going live. He decided to create a beautiful mess of a variety show. So, John? This was inspired by... Uh, PTI's Turkey of the Year 
segment that they do every every Thanksgiving. Uh, obviously, we're putting a positive spin on it and and naming people that that we think are winners. But we're just going to go in rapid fire succession, name somebody, give a little reason why, and uh, hope that we don't spontaneously combust. You want to start, Travis Scott? taking people's attention on Fortnite and turning it into a musical moment that might actually change the way we think of virtual concerts. All right. Shout out to Tory Lanez because I think he did an incredible job, but I'm going to go with Justin LeBoy. I think that's how you pronounce his name. He is the host of a virtual strip, strip club <laughs> called Demon Time. Uh, I don't know if I can sum this up in a few sentences, but basically it was a strip club that was on Instagram. I used to travel from account to account every night because you can't have nudity on Instagram. And if you looked at the comment sections, it was Kevin Durant in there. Justin Combs was the co-host unofficially. It was fucking, well, Tori was in there. The weekend. The weekend was in there. Yo, the weekend was in demon time while he had the number one album in the country. I'm going to be real. Sorry, I'm about to do a flagrant name drop, but... You know, that's the only thing, it, that's the only way it works. I texted him and I was like, yo, you're the realest nigga on earth because you have the number one album in the country and you're in fucking demon time. Pop star. Incredible. Pop star. Pop star. That was, that was dope. That was real. Um, my, king, my, my quarantine kings are Swiss Beats and Timberland. There was a lot of uncertainty going on in the politics. You know, they, I think they solidified why hip hop is the greatest genre of all time. You know? Uh, so many different uh, layers and, and, and challenges, you know, sub-genres of hip-hop from Wu-Tang uh, to commercialized radio hip-hop, you know, and everything in between. Um, it, it just gave people such a nostalgic vibe and, you know, people were watching it together and actually feeling like they were on a concert together. Incredible. Uh, versus. Shout out to us with these Versus. Addictive. Um, but that's all we got, gents. Uh, it was good talking to you guys. I know we've been talking on text and here and there, but uh, I've been missing these conversations. I think uh, hopefully we won't take two more months to, you know, put another episode together. And hopefully uh, we won't have to do more uh, <laughs> more of the winners of quarantine when we go back into quarantine. So we, might, <laughs> we might have part two at the end of the summer. Winners of phase two. Uh, <laughs> all right. Honorable mention for quarantine, uh, The Last Dance. You know, Michael Jordan. Ah, uh, uh, yo, that's not an honorable mention. That's, that's a fucking the, That's winner. the honorable winner. <laughs> that's the honorable winner. Yeah. Wait, it's <laughs> not hip-hop. It's not hip-hop, but it did have a great... It's the culture. It's the culture. It is. It is. It's, it's, what, it's whatever Kenny Lattimore is. <laughs> yo! Produced the greatest meme of 2020. The best. Easily. <laughs> that new Kenny Lattimore. You know, he's a friend of mine. It ain't out yet. Like, yo, you, yo, you bragging about this new Kenny Lattimore? That wasn't uh, even a stunt in 98. It wasn't. Never, never, never was. And shout out to Kenny because he had uh, Shantae Moore for a while, so I'm not clowning. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Nah, nah. Shout out. Shout out to Kenny. He's even more a legend of a legend now. But uh, that's it, guys. Till next time. Uh, you know, obviously, follow us on social media at Ratpack on Twitter and Instagram. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. Till next time, this is Carl Cherry, Rick Clark, John Tanners. Peace. Peace.